You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. It's your two favorite vessels of love uh, on the morning after the 94th Annual Academy Awards. <laughs> oh, man. Consider this your rude slap in the face of a, right. a podcast. Um. Yeah, we're what brings us here is 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 love. This is a this is a fairly non-traditional episode of Be Real. Um we're going to talk about three movies that my word doc says are called the Miami Batch. It's the three movies that Noah and I watched together on our recent Miami excursion, which I believe was a fun time. Noah, you said the whole time you wanted it to be bad good. Did it live up to your expectations? Oh, I would say so. I feel like if there is an NPR article posted the day you leave from Miami Beach saying that they're imposing a midnight curfew because of yeah. the spike in violence and uh, drunken merriment that's been happening where you've just been staying for the last four nights, uh, then it's got to be bad good, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was lived up to that billing. And merriment is such a kind word for what we and so many others experienced. Um, yeah, the 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 Roman orgy that was happening in the streets. We did manage though to to seek out movies as was as was our plan. So we watched three in Miami. Two of them in local theaters. I found myself this morning being like, where did we watch this movie? Um so the outfit we saw uh downtown at a CMX cinemas, which was like what, a high class Alamo Draft House kind of thing? Or same as Alamo Draft House probably. It definitely had the, like, aesthetics of being more high-end. And then we were also, like, kind of in this weird Blade Runner high-end mall, you know, where right. it was unclear, like, when we were in a store, when what was the movie theater, what was the hallway, what was the escalator. It was great. And we're going to talk about Deep Water, which we watched on Hulu together, and then we're going to talk about the horror movie X, which we found uh, at this kind of cool single-screen art house in Miami Beach called O Cinemas. Um, do we want to... I mean, my brain is still a flood and in some ways uh, waterlogged by oh. the events of the Oscars last night. I mean, it's less than 12 hours later. Do you do you have any uh, one-liners set to launch? Do you have any freezing cold takes about uh, public displays of violence? I, As I told you before we started recording, I still think that John Travolta calling Adina Menzel... Adele Nazim was far more violent than anything that occurred last night and was far more damaging uh, to the the central woman involved in the controversy. On Wind Up Alone, Will Smith can't get his arm far back enough to match the Oscar-winning, wickedly talented. Like, there's no, there's no comparison in terms of Wind Up. That being said, though, the form, I, I've watched the form a couple of times and just like a lot of commentators who are just focusing on the the physical act of it have 
remarked that it was a like a movie. It was a Hollywood slap. Like it really did have a wind up and then follow through and really mm-hmm. like didn't break stride at all. I think there is something kind of, uh, uh, I'll say sickeningly actorly about the whole thing. As you said, it was a perfectly executed actor slap. He immediately was like, how do I turn what I've done here into like performance art about me and my <laughs> movie star persona? Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was movie, lovers, yeah. movie lovers unite, you know? Um, you should see who we're becoming. Yeah. No, I I don't know. What do people want from the Oscars? I feel like there's these two poles of like, it, it, it must celebrate the art <laughs> and the artist. You know, like Richard Brody wrote this like inane thing this morning for The New Yorker about how it was, you know, just because the, the, the program itself went in in such bad faith by like pulling away from some of these... Yeah, technical below the line Oscars, which parenthetically, right. I thought they were like cutting them out. They just gave them earlier and then like stitched them in in an awkward way. It wasn't like these people didn't have a moment akin to what their moment would have been had it been live, in my opinion. I, I thought the, the like weirder, bombastic, like, now let's throw to uh, Twitter and see like what's the most random, disparate collection of five <laughs> yeah. movies. See what of the legions of Zack Snyder fans have trolled us into <laughs> twice. <laughs> twice, including two movies that I'd never even heard of being what was it, just like biggest cheer moment or something? Uh biggest, biggest cheer tear moment. jerkers with this movie with Johnny Depp that's only half been released. Oh uh, yeah, Mina Mata or whatever. Yeah, that was com- <laughs> that was completely people being like you will not cancel Johnny Depp. We will nominate whatever his most recent film is. Oh my god. But <laughs> yeah, I mean funny. I, I don't think the the slap was that incongruous to the rest of the evening's kind of I don't know. What's the point of it being so buttoned up and so prestige i feel like that plays into the worst tropes of hollywood where these like people are untouchable and like the art they're creating like can't be lampooned or whatever (laughs) and the idea that like this is entertainment you know that's the reason that there's such a disconnect i feel like from people in their everyday lives just like streaming things on their phone or coming home and watching on tv as opposed to being like oh let me take three hours out of my life to plan to drive to theater or take public transportation to theater sit there without any access to the near constant bombardment from social media and other technologies to sit and like watch something like it's a very indulgent ask i would say in 2022 so then to have this like outrageous ceremony where it's like yes let's pat each other on the back for how far we've come and the political issues that we've tackled and solved on the silver screen here is this difficult it's, it's ridiculous so yeah. i feel like the other poll which i think frankly this oscars did was to be something that people fucking talk about like that's the reason that people don't go to the movies is because like being go- going to the movies the act of it is not something we talk about in popular culture and popular discourse anymore so to have something now that people are going to fucking talk about and maybe i'm just speaking for the coastal media elites here but like <laughs> i can't stop thinking about the oscars last night it's so interesting that like here are these huge personalities that have been made famous by these these little narratives that repeat themselves that you know something had to give and i think that there's something fascinating and frankly that's what the oscars should accomplish and maybe they did 
You're saying it was a win for the monoculture. Yes. Yes. Yeah. To have something at the center <laughs> of the discourse that we all can experience and have as as weird and terrible and bizarre as like the takes are about it. Like nobody doesn't have an opinion about that slap. Sure. And that is something that I think, you know, we need to retether movie entertainment to. Like these feuds in Hollywood have been going on since the advent of Hollywood. Like they're not new. It's not like somehow selling out to be like, oh my God, you know, look at these these two grown men who got into a moment of violence. Like that's that's the tale as old as time. John Wayne, Dalton Trumbo. And certainly other examples. Um, <laughs> I I kind of agree with you. Yes, I think it's very funny to um, the Oscars. Is a you? I think you either have to unplug. Like I I do wish I was like one of the these film people who's just like I truly don't care and I will not watch. And that I think that's great. God bless you. But if you're gonna plug in and be ambivalent about it. Like, you can't take your ambivalence all that seriously. People, like, yeah. So, I think it's probably, maybe, uh, maybe it should have been asked to you stay backstage, accept the award in absentia. But what are you going to do? Um, I think the biggest flub of the whole ceremony was not putting the stage two feet higher from where the people were sitting. Now, that's interesting. Just a sort of production public safety measure. A hundred percent. Right, right. Um, Well, since nobody talks about going to the movies anymore, let's talk for about 90 minutes about times that you and I went to the movies, shall we? I would love that. Okay. We're going to start with the outfit. I loved, what I loved most about the outfit was the way we came to it, which was walking through the metropolis of downtown Miami and then as no one does in the year 2022, being like, hey, you want to go see if there's a movie? Cinema. Yes, cinema. They're before us. (laughs) And And yes, we we had to walk through a sports bar to find it, but... Yeah, for some reason, it's like, it's Vestibule was also a sports bar. Yeah. Very interesting. CMX really hedging its bets of like, if you don't make it back to the movies, that's fine. You can get drunk on $12 beers watching yeah. March Madness what have in you, the lobby. Yeah, what if you come here for basketball and then you're like, well, it's 7.30 now. Like, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to see the outfit upstairs? Yeah. <laughs> and well, my bracket's is. busted. Do I want to check out the latest Rylance vehicle? Yes, the Ry- <laughs> Oh, Mark. Okay, so the outfit uh, is a 2022 film of which Noah is going to synopsize now. An expert tailor must outwit a dangerous group of mobsters in order to survive a fateful night. You've been all over the world. You could have a shop anywhere you like, and yet you're here. It doesn't terribly much matter where I am. I have my shears. What else does a man need besides his shears? This isn't art. This is a craft. You cannot make something good until you understand the customer. Do we let all of our customers keep black boxes in back? If we only allowed angels to be customers, soon we'd have no customers at all. 
Please, sir, I don't want any trouble. I need you to listen carefully. There are a thousand blue boys out there hunting for this. And if they find it, I start shooting. You follow? Making matters worse, there are a thousand racket boys hunting for it too. And if they find it, they start shooting. You follow? Don't want to be involved in whatever it is you do. You know exactly what it is that we do. See, the, the title is a, a play on words because not only is a, a, a group of mobsters called an outfit, but he's mm-hmm. also throughout the film making an outfit for himself. Boy, does this, is this a movie that loves to, to focus on craft. Um, oh, and I got to say, as someone who like uh, sold suits in early college at the Macy's right. Men's Shop, I... The, the way that I feel a certain caliber of people went nuts for the Greta Gerwig Little Women book creation pornography uh, yeah. towards the end of that movie, this, for me, was just like, oh, yeah. Oh, that suits 238 parts. I want to see everyone attached to the, to the, the next one. Show me it. I want to see that stitching. You didn't express your sort of sartorial enthusiasm. At the time, did you also it's grown, agree? It's a slower burn. It's grown up. Oh, okay. I like that. Um, did you also, when everybody kept calling Leonard Mark Rylance's character a tailor, did you also? He's a cutter. Like, he's no, not he's a, a cutter. I didn't actually know that that was. The did thing you know Taylor called? was a pejorative? Well, uh, we were. There. I mean, we worked with a tailor. I was just a lowly salesperson, so. I, I was never introduced to the, the cutters themselves. Joseph Abood stayed wherever Joseph Abood lives. He didn't come to make, Macy's Quaker Bridge Mall. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so Leonard, played by Rylance. A.K.A. English. Oh, yeah, they do call him English, which is why I couldn't think of the character's name when I looked it up this morning. I think they really only call him English. Uh. Mabel, played by Zoe Deutsch, works the oh. front desk. Um, Love that Zoe Deutsch. At this little shop that we uh, see. It's in Chicago, but we. this is a real, this is a bottle movie. We never leave that. Right. We never leave that shop. Um, it at was a very funny. stage called Chicago. It's very funny to me. Uh, uh, Graham Moore, who's making his directorial debut here, um, he, he wrote The Imitation Game back in, 2014 but he's a chicago native and it was just very funny to think about like what chicago bona fides are possibly working their way into this movie that is just like in a two-room set where mark rylance is like i've come to the city of chicago um (laughs) there's not a lot of it's not exactly uh, Michael Mann's thief in terms of chicago (laughs) realism and exteriors nice um and then, so the mobsters who are using this place as a as a drop uh, include uh, Dylan O'Brien, who's uh, sort of the the pretty pretty boy from uh, May, the Maze Runner movies. He's like the son of the top dog who we meet later. He's played by Simon Russell Beale, and then uh, uh, Francis is this sort of like um, scarred up, much tougher looking uh, babysitter to Dylan O'Brien's Richie. Um, and he's sort of like his henchman, but you get the sense like this is the guy who will be pulling the triggers if, and when something goes wrong. And Francis played by Johnny Flynn. Um, and yeah, they're just dropping off money all the time, including letters for this new secret organization called the outfit. Um, uh, and then there becomes wind in the middle of the night, uh, 
Richie shows up shot with Francis. They they were in a some sort of gangland warfare and needs to be stitched up by the old cutter. Uh, and then there's also this this tape um, that is allegedly has been recorded by some sort of rat that's being sent to the FBI. The machinations of the plot here. The the so the outfit is supposed to be this this like transnational criminal organization founded by Capone. That or, yeah, it was like the what was left of Capone's organization, like recalcified around all the major metropolises of the United States. Very nice. And they're um, always watching. Of course. Yeah, so they're trying to figure out how they can get protection, I believe, from the outfit against against the FBI. Well, Simon Russell Beale's Roy is like the he's like the kingpin, and they're fighting against this the La Fontaines. Yes, this like black French sub mafia uh, right. that's that's threatening there, or I guess has been there for longer. There's some sort of. Uh, uh, gentrification allegory happening i mean when i say happening i mean shoved in as a right. you know a, a 2020 kind of message movie uh, in the last 10 minutes but yeah there's that going on um but we don't see a ton outside right uh yeah otherwise it's like a, a crime chamber play where people kind of wander in shot and then here comes the boss and Rylance has got to tell this lie. And then it turns out that uh, Maple is in a, or Mabel, excuse me, is in a relationship with Richie or they're just like using the store to make out and English doesn't feel super good about that. Um, he finds these people to be dangerous men who are not to be tangled with until they are, of course. Well, I think we talked about this a little bit as we were walking to the heat game that immediately preceded uh, watching this movie is that it's one of these movies that's almost like, and you know, I complain about this constantly chance when movies are underwritten, but I feel like this one was almost overwritten to the point of having no real, like, I don't know. There was nothing gritty about it. You know, the whole thing is so impressed with itself of like, yeah, 1930s mobsters, see? But it's actually the 1950s, see? You know, and then it... I see. And then in the last couple acts, like the last two acts of it, it's so like... You remember that thing that like only made kind of sense that was actually really predictable? Like, I'm going to tie that up in this neat bow here so that everything that I want to happen is going to happen. And even like the, the... what do you call it in a horror movie where like the monster's not dead and he's got like that last gasp, like even that moment, no spoilers, but uh, was not surprising because it's so, everything just felt so rote about this movie. Yeah. It's very, um, if, if you can feel the fact that Graham Moore is a debut director, it's just that everything is so careful. Um, and you could, you could look at that as a positive saying everything is also like very cared for. Like, all the pieces are kind of moving in and out in this, like, highly programmed way that you sort of have to do in a chamber play. But the experience of watching it is, is kind of suffocating. There's no there's no air in, in that room. Um, we'll talk about this with X. But there's this weird way in which, like, a movie where you feel like anything could happen versus in this movie it's like, I nothing can happen except the thing that you tell me is going to happen next where someone right. comes in and describes some sort of outside scenario where it's just like, well, if we get the tape here, there's no way the La Fontaines could ever come back against us. 
It's like, I, I, if you say so, this is a real, like, if you say so exposition movie. Right. Yeah. And there is something about it being very like bottlenecky that you kind of know what the stakes are. Like nothing so crazy can happen that you'd have to leave the space. Right. Which is kind of a weird thing for, it almost felt like an adaptation of a play. Of course it's not, which is even weirder. Mm -hmm. It ends up feeling kind of inorganic in that way. Um, Right. And I also wish too that we can get into the performances a little bit. And of course, like Mark Rylance is a brilliant actor and he delivers every line spot perfectly. But I also feel in those moments where he really needs to have that, father daughter or maybe like a little bit romantic relationship with zoe that there's a not a ton of chemistry there you know there's not a ton of like he gives her that kind of like dad advice because that's the line in the script but i never really felt like maybe the when when she's kind of got like the gun to her head in the in the third act there but until that it's like this just feels like your employee and thus i don't really feel like because if a story is this small it's really the you know the character stakes and the character interactions that the whole thing's riding on and and then she also disappears for a good deal of the film so it's hard to then you know feel like oh it's a two-hander with them in it together like fending off these young men who can't you know deal with this this old man and this and this young woman and this you know more uh you know sort of uh, gendered society of the mid-20th century yeah, it's it's like real stock characters and then like one stock twist on all the archetypes as opposed to letting something kind of build of it's interesting you bring up their relationship between Mabel and English instead of like the like very easy kind of paternal like take care of yourself out there kind of thing <laughs> um what what if he was like a little more domineering? What if he was kind of a dick and then they actually had to like work their way toward a closer relationship? I was thinking the same thing with like Dylan O'Brien's character as kind of the snotty mafia prince. Um, you never think anything more of that character other than he's the snotty mafia prince. Whereas like maybe if you like kind of centered one of the mobsters as like more of a chief character that was like abusing english in a way that would pay off later um it's just yeah all the pieces are moving in very straight obvious lines right that then the movie sort of annoyingly is like it's it's a movie i don't like a movie that's kind of like writing your review of it to while and that's just something maybe i'm sensitive of as a critic but like this movie is has like is handing you lines where it's like, if you would like to compare this movie to a finely tailored suit, you certainly can with these five lines from our press kit. Yeah. God, you so wanted uh, Ben Affleck to have the suit making monologue about the snails in deep water. I kind of did. Well, we'll We'll get get to that. Why snails? But can yeah. we cast Mark Rylance in our RD stock biopic, do you think? I think he'd be A perfect. thousand percent. He would be great. Um, we, we, this leads me to ask, the point is, Mark Rylance is good in this movie. It's too easy for him. It's way too much like his Bridge of Spies right. character. Um, Who did I say should be in this role? Clive Owen? 
Yeah. Oh, right, right. You said Clive Owen and Florence Pugh, which I thought was genius. Thank um, you. Yeah, because Clive Owen's. Well, that's the thing too. The movie kind of needs the tension of is this guy secretly like sewer built like under that suit and like can he kick ass or is he just like a worthless sort of you know senile old man or whatever and i think i didn't mean worthless like kind of a you know like weak fragile Um, right but i and i i feel like you if you gave it to one of these actors who's like no longer in that prime leading man role yeah. And kind of make him fight for it the way like a Clive Owen can. And he's he has English manners still. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Florence Pugh would just be fun, I feel like, because I don't know. She's a lot better. Steelier. She's steelier, but she's also like way better in justifying, you know, the way she does like the the things she's looking for from other from other characters like I, I feel like you never doubt why in midsummer like why she goes on that ridiculous trip because you can feel her like just needing a little bit of human contact in order to you know stave off the pain of her trauma well and this one too you know like this is a young woman who's dealt with the loss of her parents and then is maybe in a relationship that's you know not serving her needs but is like is what is necessary for her to keep going. And yeah, I don't know that that's there in the performance that much. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Do you want to turn toward spoiler territory? Yeah. I mean, what are the big spoilers of the, the thing that he admits in the first conversation he has privately with Dylan O'Brien turns out to be basically true. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. If you don't want to know the ending of, the outfit uh give it give it two to three minutes um well but is it, i think it's important to talk about as much as like the twists in a movie like this that is kind of reminiscent of like that agatha christie puzzle as much as we've established in the last episode like they don't matter all that much because again i'm just taking the script's word for them um the big turn here the one big character kind of kaiser soze choice is that uh, Rylance English is like a former uh, violent criminal himself. And he's got these like crazy tattoos on his arm. And, he, and when the shit finally hits the fan, he, he will throw down and stab you with his scissors. Um, that scene's not good enough, though. No. Um, it's very reminiscent of something like Unforgiven. Uh, right. But or the even thing like in- History of Violence... Or even like that Clive Owen. uh, Did you ever see I'll Sleep When I'm Dead? No. When Clive Owen's like, you think he's just sort of like a drug addict, sort of homeless person. And then Mm. his his, uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, his brother, gets murdered by the the outfit that he's working for. And he has to like dig up all his fun. Even John Wick, man. Like... It's it's that kind of thing of you know what is what are the special skills you know Liam Neeson's made a career on these kinds of movies that have a little bit more pop to them. Yeah, but we're talking about specifically a movie that like in the last five minutes this character has not been what he seems. Um, so I like those other comps. Um, I, any anyone I bring up kind of spoils it, but like The Drop is another great example based on that Dennis Lehane book. Um, but the thing about Unforgiven is at the end of that movie. William Money kills 19 people in a bar and you're like, oh, oh my God, Jesus fucking Christ. This character like has a, has a void of <laughs> black bile in his soul. 
Um, and look what he's capable of. And that moment for Rylance lasts like all of 15 seconds. And you get this one very scary look in his eye. Credit to Mark for being able to muster that. But the uh, the violence is, is not compelling enough to kind of save all of the very neat and tidy proceedings. What about the equalizer? Is that a better comp? No, because he's kicking people's ass the whole movie. But You're I just thinking I, of I, movies where people where old men are violent. <laughs> old men with histories of violence are violent yet again. Uh, that sounds like a good a good be, be real category. Uh, mm. But anyway, no, you're right that it needs like that more jarring last reel. You know, yes. he needs to like bring the, the whole. Beast. Yeah, he needs to bring the whole, like both crime syndicates to their knees. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, Chicago is mine now is what I want him to scream as he runs out into a because there's got to be that shot. thing too where the the movie the one bow that the movie does not tie up is the question of like would people come for him like if they figured it out like is he yeah. safe like that's what I think is so you know that one of the tropes that movies like this return to is that once you kind of open the whatever pandora's box can of worms whatever you like can't go back like there's always a boss of the boss of the boss Mm -hmm. i guess this movie like it's clever you know joker up its sleeve is that oh he made up the whole outfit so nobody is coming and it's it's you know much smaller than you thought but like that's not a fucking interesting thing to do in a movie well, again, what if you made up this thing that this movie just made up like 20 minutes ago that already seems made up? Like, it's not, there's not enough groundwork for that to be subversive. Right. Because you're no, just I guess taking it's, other characters' words for it. Go ahead, sorry. I guess it is pretty bold in 2022 to not have this open-ended kind of, and this is the beginning of the world that uh, intersects with the... Uh, uh john wick you know yeah. that's that's when mark rylance opened up the continental hotel you know exactly. or whatever and i mean maybe they could link them um but it is it is interesting that they didn't choose to be like oh but but one guy is still alive or like one guy witnessed the whole thing or like there could be a sequel if this movie makes more than whatever amount of money it's made so why don't we tell people how we rate movies on be real and then we'll rate the outfit On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, Horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Tut, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I've just been so mean to the outfit for the past however many minutes that I, like, 
I now feel as though by our albeit rudimentary rating system, like it is <laughs> it is obviously one of them maybe more than my tone has otherwise indicated. So now I feel like a fraud. What because we've been talking about it like a bad bad, but it's actually probably good bad? That is exactly right. Yeah, no, I hear that because every the movie is doing every single thing it wants to do, and it's making all the right cuts and stitchings in exactly the way it wants to kind of round out this very uh, tidy, as we've said, like outfit and outfit, one to one. It's it's not technically bad. It's just like not ambitious and not interesting and not rewatchable, and it's it's too too many bows. Listen, as the 75-year-old heterosexual white man sitting in front of us at the movie theater exclaimed after the ending credits, I love that even more than Death on the Nile. (laughs) I had already gone to the bathroom by that point, I think. Um, But I love that even more. It is better than Death on the Nile. Yeah, but it really is made for... It's like a movie you take your dad to see. Yeah. Yeah, and then your dad, who hasn't been to the movies in three years, uh, is just like, "Wow, the twists and turns is so well constructed, right?" <laughs> it was a bit like a fine suit. I feel like so many films I see now are so unintelligent, but this one, right? This one had oh. something. Yeah, right. Um, and to you, Dad, I say good, bad, perfect. I love it. Why don't we talk next about deep water? (laughs) I would love nothing more. I have been, of the movies that we watched in Miami, this is the one that I have been chewing uh, with the most. Uh, It's just like this old hunk of beef jerky that I can't quite pry from my gums. Uh, And then everyone who I know who has seen it, we've talked about it too. and, And my feelings about it have only become more complex. Wow. Uh, it stars everyone's favorite piece of beef jerky, uh, <laughs> Benjamin Affleck um, and Ana de Armas. Uh, they were together at the time of its of its production back in 2019, since obviously um, they're not. Uh, directed by Adrian Lyne, uh, sort of, we call them an exploitation director, but it's like a very kind of like, mainstream Hollywood um you know thrillers thrillers that are like lightly transgressive and in their misogynism mostly right it's just like (laughs) thrillers with the premise aren't women just the worst right isn't this man in big 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 trouble (laughs) so we're talking of course about fatal attraction uh nine and a half weeks indecent proposal um I watched indecent proposal the other night oh you did what a similarly not that good movie. <laughs> uh, Unfaithful. Um, I believe is the last movie that Adrian Lyne made. It had been a long time for well, him. He's just I, been waiting for the perfect script. He's in his mid-80s. To it, It's kind of amazing that he got to make another movie. And but from what I hear, him. this is exactly the movie that he wanted to make. 
Like yeah. it was important for him to have final cut, and he did. And this this is it. <laughs> and <laughs> and when you think about final cut and having all the absolute perfect elements in place to make a coherent movie, you think about Deep Water. This totally. is the kind of movie you watch where it's just like, I have no more questions. Thank you. I'm glad you had Final Cut, artist. <laughs> yes. Oh, may I read the synopsis? Please. A well-to-do husband who allows his wife to have affairs in order to avoid a divorce. I, we'll have to unpack that. I don't know about Be- that. Yeah. Becomes a prime suspect in the disappearance of her lovers. Hmm. I think that's a terrible synopsis. That's not what I good, would no. say is that a well-to-do husband, parenthetically government contractor, war crim- slash war criminal, yeah, millionaire, uh, <laughs> uh, watches passively or, or stews <laughs> somewhat passively as his wife has affairs, uh, which provokes violence. I'll, 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 even, I'll let me take one, even one more run. Um, a burly government contractor uh, watches unblinkingly as wife does same thing over and over and over again. Uh, his only recourse being violence and getting his daughter to play old McDonald's on the Alexa. Right. Yeah. To drive her, in, drive her to drink. Unshaven war criminal. <laughs> Why are you the only man who wants to stay with me? Mm-hmm. You too. I do. That's good. Mm. Why is mom so different around other people? I think this is who she is. You love me. Of course. She's comfortable flaunting all these relationships around all of us. You're better than that. She's different. That's what I like about her. I just want to feel joy in my life. You want to tell me why you didn't come home last night? Not really. This isn't a game, Melinda. It's always been a game. (laughs) Let me start with the first... Uh, point of contention here that a lot of people have um, that this is an erotic thriller I don't necessarily know that it is Um, it's not a particularly erotic movie in my opinion it's definitely like a like a murder thriller Um, but I feel like a lot of you right there I would say if you your movie has a scene in which someone's dick gets even playfully bitten, that mm. is both erotic and thrilling. You're right. But I just don't think the movie the movie does not really hinge on their sexual relationship. Um it hinges on like the lack thereof. It hinges on like what comes of right. weird cyclical impotence. Um right. And I feel like a lot of people just like went to this movie and were like, it's not what I want. I thought we were getting steamy, 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 Affleck and Anadarmus and like gave up at that exact moment. And it's actually like a much 
weirder, um, kind of like more middle-aged kind of movie about frustration. And it's based on a Patricia Highsmith book from the 50s. And like a much better comp than like Fatal Attraction would be like some of her, the other film adaptations of like her lesser work. It's like a lot like Two Faces of January where there's like an older husband who's just kind of powerless to do anything except give in to his worst instincts and slap Chris Rock at the Oscars. Yikes. Yeah, I actually kind of like Two Phases of January. Um, it's all right. It's certainly great to see Kiki, Vigo, and Oscar kind of give each other a bunch of looks all around Greece or whatever it is happening. Well, that's the thing, too. So what I feel like you need for a movie like this, you know, parenthetically, a Patricia Highsmith adaptation, parenthetically, an erotic thriller, whatever we're calling this, right. um, is a bigger exploration of like the space that they're in i mean even indecent proposal like has these gorgeous shots of both los angeles and las vegas and that kind of like roots you in place and like why people are making certain choices i mean in indecent proposal there's this great scene when woody harrelson realizes that debbie moore has has consented to have sex with uh, Robert Redford. He's just like walking through the casino and he keeps like bumping into people. I feel like this movie wants to do that so badly with the biking sequences with Ben Affleck or the, yeah. even the snails, but it just like, it's such a claustrophobic movie. Cause in some ways it is almost similar to the outfit, like a movie all set up in this fucked up haunted house that they live in, you know, right. But it really isn't that because it'll leave for any moment. And the the the, the climactic uh, scenes are not in the house, really. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's it's strange because all the Patricia Highsmith movie. Blah, blah, blah. It's strange because all the Patricia Highsmith movies that I love, like are all like when you talk about talented Mr. Ripley, even with Carol. You know, it's like, oh, here's New York at a really cool time. You right. know, talented Mr. Ripley, you know, or Ripley's Game. It's like, wow, look at these cool European cities. Like, what are these, like, these funky sets? You know, so it's all even about how if, the characters blend into these, like, larger totally. than life places. And I think this movie tries to do that with, like, a series of very bizarre house parties <laughs> yeah. where, like, Lil Rel Howery and uh, Dash Mihawk from uh ray ray donovan uh like they like do they like oh let's see if i can balance this three thousand dollar bottle of whiskey on my head as i like crawl across the croquet lawn and it's it's like what 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 day of the week is it like where are we it's very confusing because uh it's it's clearly shot in new orleans but people keep sort of making reference at some point Tracy Letts shows up as like a as a as a novelist who kind of pivots to maybe true crime. He seems to as... be having some Hollywood success as well. Sure, you know uh, how those spec strips just languish in development. I mean, Adrian Lyon, I think knows something about it from this movie potentially. Um, um, I don't know. If this is a spec script, anyway. But he made references like being sort of inspired by like a small town, and it's really unclear if this is like a outskirts of savannah kind of thing like is there and then when affleck like rides his bike into town it looks like it's the only diner in town like give it give us some of that hard target pelican brief new orleans please we should say 
what we like about this movie before we go all in on critiquing the narrative. What we like about it is that the the two lead performances, as limited as Anna de Armas is, and you know what? I'll actually say the three performances because as we talked about, the the girl, the like six year old daughter. Um, let me let's get her name real quick. Grace Jenkins is Trixie. She is terrific, and her precociousness in the movie is used in this really like insidious, memorable way to be like she truly is her father's daughter, and uh, in this kind of uh, cold war that's taking place in the household, like she's gonna take his side because there's something about their bond or the fact that he's like molding her in his image as like a as like a young scientist like making potato electric currents um and having her sing in the back seat that's like this is the one area where it's like it's two on one and Ana de Armas like if there's anything in this movie that explains why she is a philandering alcoholic which there is really not very much um <laughs> Uh, it's just that like she is an outsider in her own home where this guy who, let me go ahead and break the seal on this, is not a normal guy, is raising <laughs> not a normal daughter, and she's terrific. I think you alluded to it a bit in your line read there, but like what I also love about this movie is that Ben Affleck goes like full Patrick Bateman in some of yes. these scenes. Every and single like, line delivery is perfect from him, I think. Yeah, the, but I made lobster bisque <laughs> is such a great, just, and the way he, like, plays with, he's like a cat playing with a mouse, like, with some of her boyfriends. And yeah. it's so good, like, and, you know, he doesn't quite hit the register of, like, hey, Paul! No. Uh, which I think is for the best, uh, but to see him, like, go from, like, stoic and mumbly to the people that he has to be somewhat civil around to being like a real demented weirdo yeah. uh you know in the scenes when he's alone with people is so good it was this paper thin kind of veil over his insanity that the veil is just sort of money and domesticity and quiet like he as you said he rarely like raises his his voice. There so is like, a, a, Vi, or a Vic Van Allen, but it is illusory. <laughs> so I feel like even in the Bateman readings, we're like ramping up our impressions. But that like, I'm not being rude. I made lobster bisque as part of this very uncomfortable like couple repartee where he invites like the first boyfriend over to apologize because he scared him at a party by saying he killed this guy who's been sort of locally famously missing for some time um and she's like no we have to make amends with uh what is his name joel oh joel um, you gotta invite him over so he makes lobster bisque and then is like proceeds to be very creepy and then he says well because he's like, allergic to shellfish so right. he's like what he gets so <laughs> upset by it it's so funny as if he like didn't obviously know that this guy was allergic to shellfish and made it because of that and then i love love his relationship with the snails during the Finn Whitrock scenes where he's like well you don't eat them you have to starve them for three weeks otherwise they're poison right which is the closest you've been making fun of me because I was making fun of this movie I wasn't making fun of you I think it's such a legitimate criticism 
well, we were imagining kind of a hackneyed version where <laughs> like he gives this monologue or like, you know, the thing about slugs, Finn Whitrock, is that they marry for life and they eat each other. Um, so this movie doesn't Every have that. Every once in a while, a, a female snail yeah. will take in another male and the, the alpha male will watch the lady snail fuck the new male snail and then the male snail alpha will eat the other male snail. So for better or worse, that's not in this movie. <laughs> but there has to be something between that kind of hackneyed uh, monologue and explaining why he raises snails. He never, never says does. why he likes to do it. And then it at, the e- at the end, I don't think this is a spoiler, but it's like a significant object that he has like placed in the snail terrarium for... Absolutely Everyone no. knows snails eat leather wallets and yeah. credit cards. It's part of their mating ritual. <laughs> uh, it only brings them closer together and hardens their shells. Now, let me ask you this. and I, It's yes. a little bit in the movie. I was talking to someone yesterday who had read the actual book. And in the, the Highsmith novel, it's a bigger kind of deal that... So, like, part of what Highsmith uses to explain, like why Melinda needs to bring in, that's the wife, needs to bring in other men is that like uh, Vic is not the kind of guy who can dance at a party. And like, Uh. that's what she's looking for is like someone to be flamboyant with her and like, you know, physically fulfill this, you know, whatever. So it's not just sex. It's just like someone who has like the confidence to be whatever, you know? And then of course it's a much more meaningful scene when he then takes that other man's daughter wife to, to dance uh, at the party. (laughs) And then, um, you know, of course uh, it does turn out that he has the wherewithal for, for the physicality of, of being a husband uh, or being, I don't know, whatever Will Smith was purportedly protecting last night. Exactly. Um, But it was out of love. Um, But, Yes, you're right. That makes sense, but there is no there is like no setup to this movie that like establishes like what Vic is about. He's just allowed to be kind of weird and imperiled throughout. Um so yeah, you don't Affleck doesn't really play or even have any opportunity in the script to play um kind of awkward broken down guy who's like treating her like a trophy wife. He he just seems like a guy who'd rather go flirt still rather charmingly like away from the dance floor. He seems perfectly right. capable of being in these parties that he frequents. Yeah, he doesn't seem like an outsider in his own life. The movie no. kind of, I feel like, struggles between, and if if I dare workshop it at all, you know how I love to do that, Chance. I do. But I feel like you're right, that either he needs to be far more awkward you know, and weird and left out you know, during these party sequences. Cause like when the, like when the jazz piano, uh, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, it's Jacob Elordi from Euphoria. Jacob Elordi like comes over and, and on Armas introduce him. It was introduces him to Ben Affleck. He's like, like, Hey guy, you fucking my wife. Sweet. Can I refill re- refresh your, your drink? You know, yeah. he's like chill about it. 
but I feel like you need someone who's like visibly like more upset about it or like at least like you know boiling on the inside or something or and this was my big note if 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 nb does a you know a tweak pass you know a late redraft on the a punch up there you go i would have it be that she fucking knows the whole time that he's a murderer and the reason that like the thing that keeps them from because there's that great scene where she comes home drunk from hanging out with the jazz player and is like you know we just did whatever you don't want to know i'm not going to tell you and like there's a universe in there where he like throws her down on the on the hallway floor and like has sex with her right there and like that jealousy is the thing that kind of moves him and i think that's like character a the one who's like a little bit more you know kind of out of out of place at parties but i think the more interesting is character b where like he can't become aroused by her unless he kills the guy like mm-hmm. that's the thing that he like comes home and does immediately after and there is kind of a like the one time we do see them have sex is kind of after one of those so it is sort of there but i think sort the of. the movie doesn't quite land the the idea that you know it's not phantom thread like instead of being poisoned with the mushrooms for him to be feel like taken care of it's like oh i'm gonna murder your boyfriend so i can like you know get turned on here yeah, and it just keeps repeating too. There's there's nothing different or exciting or raising the stakes about the three different dudes that she keeps bringing home and doing the same thing with. And they keep and going missing again. or dying. Right. And the cops are moving seem, to Albuquerque. Well, what's the difference? Um but it also seems like the police there is one like sort of requisite you know, oh, the police show up after one of the guys dies in the pool. Great scene. You know what? That scene is, I think, an example of where this movie is, like, campiest and best and sort of fucked up and, you know, uh, dark-spirited or whatever. Is the idea that, like, not only do they pull out his lifeless corpse, you know, from the pool where he's obviously drowned and he's dead, they then, like, they drop him so much so that he, like, cracks his skull open on the edge of the pool, which probably like didn't help if there were like a Hollywood sense of maybe we can revive him. Uh, He's fucking, he's dead dead at that point. Yeah. I think you actually hit it. What makes this movie really like watchable and interesting in a pretty anachronistic way is that it is kind of, it is mean spirited. It is. The vibes are horny and mean spirited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, skulls are cracked. Dicks are bitten. Um, uh, old old men are dispatched with because they can't like text and drive. Um, yeah, the ego of having to type. I'm right. I was right all along <laughs> is what leads to the dispatchment of a, a, a the antagonist of this film. Yeah. Um, the the turning the the daughter sort of being like naturally oriented against the mom as like a, a symbol of like how she cannot exist in this household. Um is that stuff that makes a movie like good? It's not something we have much of an appetite for in 2022, but I, I think it makes the movie like a fascinating real time artifact of like this guy who hasn't been able to make a movie in 18 years. Um, because we haven't, we really haven't put a, like a, put our finger on this exact thing yet. We had a ball watching this movie. We laughed to high heaven, um, at how, (laughs) Uh, how 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 worried 
Ben Affleck was the whole time. And that is really what tickles us, I think, about the Patrick Bateman thing is like, you have this guy with this chin <laughs> and these shoulders and this money, but everything he says is just panicked. It is panicked. And it's it's so calculated and I don't know. It, some of the line reads reminds me of like, I love that scene in Michael Clayton when uh, Tilda Swinton's practicing for the interview that she's about to give in the bathroom. It's like, what? it's it's quite expansive. Like, there are a lot of line reads like, oh, why did you say it like that? But, you know, I don't know. I think I think you put this out, Chances, that Ben Affleck's really having kind of a moment where he's trying interesting things. Like, you know, you point out The Last Duel, which I also really enjoyed, uh, where he's just like this lovable freakazoid you know uh again you know vassal of this of this kingdom where he can just kind of do what he wants uh i think he's having a good time you fincher was the first one to show us with gone girl that like thwarted affleck is actually the best affleck like you use all of this all of these privileges um can be used against him because of like a lack of impulse control or a lack of some internal like core imbalance of like not being confident enough to just like exist and and yes you totally see that in like this and last duel and um yeah even even some of like the i think people have this weird affection for him in the j-lo relationship because it's so clear now that he's kind of like the doofy junior partner of that relationship um and it's just coming down a peg like made him more more likable somehow and he's feeding into it with a movie like this People love to, like, love how sad and weird his professional and, like, personal choices are. Oh, and Triple like, Frontier we forgot to talk about. Yeah, that would be another Oh, and example. then, of course, his, yeah, I mean, his somewhat public, uh, you know, meltdowns with alcohol abuse, too. But, like, not in a way where he, like, ended up talking about, you know, how Jews are doing something, like, in a <laughs> traffic stop. But rather, like, it manifests in him, like, getting that dragon tattooed all over his back or, like, right. you know, trying to navigate all those Dunkin' Donuts things as he's, like, getting into his mansion without yeah. someone holding the door for him. Wow. Like, it's, it's good stuff. I'm going to make a sports movie about how much I need to drink coffee out of little paper cups. Yeah. That's the way back. Got it. But yeah, no, I think he's, he's, this is a renaissance for him right now. And I'm, I for one am really enjoying the risks that he's taking. For sure. That being said, this movie is not Gone Girl. It is not Last Duel. Uh, it's not even, you know, lines some of uh, his weirder, more, hinged uh stuff but it is a lot of fun yes i i feel like my tone afterward was really wondering aloud could i could i give it a good good i had such a good time um with 10 days of reflection absolutely not this nope. is <laughs> this is a bad good movie that <laughs> if you talk about any individual element of it it does not make a lick of sense it could be so much better with a Noah Ballard pass on the script. Um, I'm available for punch ups. But it is absolutely a bad good. Last thing I'll say, uh, sorry, before I pass it back to you, is it is very fun to watch this movie as a, um, like a later in life uh, Bruce Wayne story. Just imagining someone who is kind of like a moneyed, possessive billionaire 
nutcase who's never been in like a meaningful relationship like try to retire and start a family but he cannot control his like his work his stupidest vigilante instincts from kicking in so i think it's i think it's the affleck wayne bruce wayne story we never got i love that uh i you know we, we've talked about all my my quibbles and you know what i loved about this movie uh, i agree that it's a bad good um I think a movie, especially a movie that's like first half is clearly colored with kind of a green palette and then the rest of the movie kind of like gives up on that visual aesthetic could not be a good good. Uh, <laughs> the ones at just... the end are very yellow. Yeah, but the it's rest like of enough them, green, like enough now yellow. It's like, I'd like this to be a Fincher film. Actually, actually I, I have my own vision. So let's keep what we've already colored and <laughs> do the rest something else. It has that that sort of slapdash post production feel to it, um, but yeah, I, I, it was a lot of fun. I would would consider throwing this on again. Uh, you know, give it some time, forget a little bit about it. Uh, you know, but so such a such a weird weird series of performances by you know. I mean, this unlike the outfit, this is really anchored by some A list talent. You know, and mm-hmm. that's that's what I'm here for. Indeed. Why don't we talk about the uh, the final movie that we watched, which is Ten. Uh, to- Come now. He's goofing. Is it, is it not pronounced ten? He's doing it as a goof. Um, Ty West X, uh, a horror movie that uh, we sought out on a, a little Sunday afternoon respite. Um, Again, O Cinemas. If you're ever in Miami and you're like, what is the one uh, art house theater in this town that is sort of like housed in like a county building where like one person will come out and greet you and be like, show's in two hours. I'll bring you your popcorn personally. And in the meantime, feel free to browse our thousand film book library. Go to O Cinemas. Yeah, it definitely has that like new Beverly Cinema kind of feel to it where, you know, but in a town that doesn't care about movies at all. Right, yeah. If you take out Los Angeles's pension for <laughs> movies, that's uh, that's what you got. But yeah, the, the the tickets were cheap. The snacks were were fun and cheap, uh, and it was cool just to like sit in a dark room after the rest of the debauchery of our trip. Indeed. In 1979. A group of young filmmakers set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. But when their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast finds themselves fighting for their lives. Farmer's daughter, take one. I need to be famous, Wayne. All the best people are. There ain't nobody else out there like you. You know why? Why? You got that X factor. That day's a struggle and may soon be over. Hollywood, here we go. I just want me. So this is it. Our own studio backlog. I'm looking for a place to stay. Oh, yes, sir. That's one ugly son bitch. And my wife, Pearl, is next door. So I would appreciate a little discretion. I just want me. He don't know what we're doing, does he? Well, it's better to beg for forgiveness and ask for permission. Would you like to come inside? Much obliged. 
I want to be in the movie. Well, you can't. The story can't just change midway through. If Daddy catches us, there's no telling what he might do. My wife is not well. It happens after dark. Ty West, I believe, is a director known to to horror heads um, for some interesting indie horror work throughout the 2010s. He he's part of the kind of group of um, directors, including the Radio Silence guys and Adam Wingard and uh, Greg Bruckner, who are launched out of that movie. Uh, VHS. Oh, I'm sorry. Not uh, Greg Bruckner. He's a golfer. I meant David Bruckner, who directed The Night House, <laughs> um, who were launched out of that anthology uh, movie VHS. Um, and then he made like House of the Devil and Innkeepers. Um, I really want to watch House of the Devil. I, I feel like that's his most, Ty West's most liked movie. Um, he did In the Valley of Violence as a Western I didn't really care for. And then a lot of TV in recent years. And now here he is back in the horror space, uh, with a A24 wide release trying to capitalize on whatever the late March box office in a in the late pandemic has to offer and at least it it, it got us to go um so with the setup Noah described there's no getting around the Texas Chainsaw Massacre comparison at all and I don't really think the movie attempts to get around it it pretty much wears its influences on its sleeve and then it does its thing in a fairly unselfconscious way, which I appreciated. There are certainly like like litanies of, of, of references and, and imagery that you'll recognize from someone who's, you know, dabbling in the, whatever, the deserted creepiness of, um, what do they call it? Like hicksploitation. Um, but yeah, I really, all, the thing I like about the movie is that it establishes this, this kind of cavalcade of, of like boogie nights in a van characters uh, gives them a lot of personality uh, and kind of turns them loose on this, on this ranch making this film where like, sure, some fairly cliche things happen, but it also feels like pretty expansive. It feels, I, I for one was not sure where the movie was going at a lot of different points. How'd you feel about it? Yeah, unlike the outfit, it even though you know they're probably not going to leave this, you know, 10-acre property or whatever. Yeah. Like it does feel as though anything can kind of happen because even though there are only like two central structures sort of on the property, it's the creepy old house and then the barn where they're sh- where they're staying and where they're shooting the film. You know, there's just so much character development and like these these desperate and disparate people who like want these desperate and disparate things that I feel like from the outset, I was compelled by, you know, just the amount of choose your own adventure endings this could kind of have, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think, too, 
of course, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre comparison is, uh, you know, undeniable. But I also think that this movie really kind of drives at something that, you know, in recent years, the kind of read on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, at least the original, has been where if you kind of look at the film from the monster's point of view, it's honestly like people are trespassing on their property. Like they're coming to the problem. They're not like, you know, going out into the world to hurt anybody. They see the people that have come to them as a threat, whether they're, you know, perverse, you know, isolated logic, uh, is the, you know, the normal thing one would do. Like, it's tough to say, but, like, this movie also kind of pokes at the, if you're listening to the TV preacher on again, on again, on again, you know, you're going to start feeling some type of way about it, you know. And for me, the horror kind of came out of, you know, we got these people, you know, sort of living in relative isolation, especially over the past two years, just sitting there digesting Fox News and America's own network or whatever. And, mm-hmm. like, they see the people coming to them as not as these sort of, like, sexually free and open-minded artists, but, like, as pornographers and sinners who are attempting to infiltrate the lives that they've built for each other and for themselves. So I think this movie is, like, pretty subversive in showing humanity for what are, at least on screen, like, the makeup department's, like, not, like, let's make these people as human as possible, but the script. Right. The script is still, you know, playing with that contrast of like we never really see these like decrepit old people that we know they're wearing 10 pounds of prosthetics. But like they're humans. They're just a couple who like the romance is kind of the, the physical romance has died in their relationship and they're lamenting that they're not the younger people that they once were. And they think of like, well, we've done all the things that at least our side of society told us we needed to do to be happy. And we're not like, who's, who's to blame. And it's the, it's the, you know, the people the who Houston, are still happy. Yeah, it's the Houston-based, you know, happy-go-lucky pornographers that have rented our cabin for the weekend. Indeed. Um, So Mia Goth plays uh, Maxine, who is the sort of... I I don't I wouldn't say I wanted to say burgeoning porn star, but that's just kind of who she wants to be. I get the sense that she's just like an exotic dancer in a club in in Houston who uh, they're going to go try this uh, straight to VHS. Uh, adult film thing and and she thinks that it's her big break because uh, she's snorting some coke and Martin Henderson as Wayne the producer on the film and the club owner is like this is your big break you got that X Factor baby it's time to go Um, Mia Goth who is really terrific in uh, Claire Denis' High Life. People also really like her in A Cure for Wellness, a film I have not seen. Uh, She's great in Suspiria too. She's great at um, freaking the fuck out in but in like a what what are this person's like intentions what's causing them to do this uh sort of imperceptible kind of way uh and that as you as you were sort of describing the character ambiguity in this movie really works to her advantage also i don't think we knew this at the time and i i don't think this is a spoiler she you were like was she double cast she was double cast mia goth is playing the the old woman as well what yeah yep I, that's awesome. I didn't know that. I just, that was just a, I think that's so, 
well, and I'll get to my workshop on this, you know, as we as we come toward a, a rating here. But I think that that is one of the more interesting choices, knowing that that is a thing now that the movie makes to sort of understand its own logic. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and the old people, if if there is another like Texas Chainsaw Resonance, like part, the the scariest thing in the first. 45 minutes of the movie. Well, actually, I should take that back. The scariest thing in the first 45 minutes of the movie is this overhead shot of an alligator that I will not totally spoil that is just absolutely brilliant and is such like a classical filmmaking technique borrowing from like Psycho. Um, There's a couple great overhead shots in this movie where you're like sort of not expecting the language of the movie to go there to build tension and to reveal um, terrifying things. That's great. Um... But the old people, for a long time, you, just you trying to get a look at their faces to figure out what their intentions are um, is the scariest part of the movie. And they kind of both look like Grandpa Sawyer from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Just totally. possibly old and crusty. Totally, yeah. Like One of the running bits is that he's so old that he can't fuck his wife anymore or he'll just like expire on the spot which doesn't prove to be that far off (laughs) yeah um let me ask you this chance yes was the sex scene in x the not the porn but the the two old people sex scene was it everything you were missing from deep water um in terms of like shock value i do let me let me so. rephrase. Have you ever seen a more sort of uh, furtive hump, uh, <laughs> a more sort of outwardly ag- like? I just don't think I've ever seen a thrust on on like a in a, a mainstream Hollywood it's, film before. It's a more violent thrust than uh, three quarters of the kills in this movie. My God. Yeah, it, I mean, it's terrific. This movie, uh, it, it that's. I like how this movie. We we talked about this term earlier, but I also like how this movie is a little bit mean spirited. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just like, if you think about it, <laughs> it's like, wouldn't it just be so disturbing if people this old wanted to fuck? They're <laughs> fucking. Yes. <laughs> it's like that. Seriously. It would be very funny um, if anybody would like to write a think piece about how X is ageist. I would welcome reading that over obvious polemic. Right. Um, I think it's funny that both Deep Water and X uh, didn't need to transpire if only the central couple could just have more regular intercourse. Absolutely. Um, Again, end of eyes wide shut. We haven't, you know what we haven't done in a while is fuck. Come on, guys. Take take a cue from a healthy relationship like Kidman and Cruz and uh, <laughs> keep that marriage alive. <laughs> Stop killing people just because you can't. Your sex Stop life is Stop slapping people in the face. Yeah. <laughs> um, get, you know what he should have yelled at uh, young Mia Goth is get my wife's face off of your face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yuck. Yuck. I gotta say, loved Kid Cudi. Yes, 
he's good as the as Vietnam vet uh, slash uh, again burgeoning once a porn, marine always a marine star Jackson. Yep, he's good. Brittany Snow as Bobby Lynn is also really good. Um, she's great. She's now hit this. She's sort of ageless because she's like always been kind of like. Uh, like what was that show uh, American Dreams on when she was supposed to be like 17 years old I mean that was on like 20 years ago mm-hmm. and she's still like could be in her late 20s early 30s Jenna Ortega who uh, people would know from Scream 5 she's the younger and sister and you season 2 she's taken a beating in these horror movies she loves them Um, can I can I actually lay out my you you were kind of getting to it about like what do these these two clashing groups of people with their values like what's up with that please um, I do think that eventually this movie becomes a fairly paint by the numbers pick them off kill totally. chain that is sometimes good but it's mostly like okay I got it you had to become whatever you felt that you had to become. Um, but it really is that like, what's the preacher saying versus like, what do these porn stars believe about themselves? There's this moment like late in the movie where, uh, Mia Goth's younger character. Why can I not remember her name? Maxine. Maxine Maxine is being like, I, I don't deserve this lot in life. And it's overlaid with the preacher kind of being like, we all get, you know, what we deserve. And, it's not, I don't think it's like a clash between this like really easy political dichotomy. It's not like liberals and conservatives. It's, it's like, I think it's something like more darker and elemental in the American spirit, which is like this great wanting that defined the like manifest destiny, like white colonization of this country versus like this super reactionary, like religious and cultural fear of wanting I mean, that like puritanical instinct that kind of like stretches throughout a lot of American culture um, that like we elevate someone and then we hate them. Like I, I'm Dickens wrote about this, like as a fundamental American problem where it's like you lift people up and then you immediately are like, oh, no, 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 no. How dare they think that they're all the way up there <laughs> and you rip them down. It's like it's a sickness endemic in the American soul. And I think that's kind of what you have with these two is like. A woman in Maxine at her peak wanting, I mean, she looks in the mirror at the beginning and has this Dirk Diggler moment of like, you're a fucking star. You're an X, you got that X factor. You're a big, bright, shining star. Um, and then the, the people who are past the age and of a conservative persuasion where it's like, it is unbecoming to want to be that are like, how dare you be filled with such desire when I am like ripped apart by my own repression of that desire. Um, I think that those themes in this movie are great. They get a little strangulated at the end by some of the like universe building uh, that this movie attempts. Um, the other thing that I found out recently from an interview with Ty West is there's already another prequel to this movie that's done. It's called Pearl. Um, so the universe is not only building, it's, it's built. Um, wow. I don't think those things necessarily help that theme they pinpointed a little too much but it, it's a it's a thoughtful movie in addition to being uh a pretty good shocking slasher totally yeah and i agree with all of that and i think too like my my workshop here my punch-up is 
I think this movie could like reach for a little bit more maybe of like supernatural whatever. Like, especially if you're going to have Mia Goth playing these two roles. And then, like, there's, of course, that scene where Pearl is walking Maxine, like, around the the foyer of this house. And there's, like, these pictures of her also being a dancer when she's a young woman and also being described as, like, having this X factor that, you know, and maybe this was some savvy studio executive cut this part out. Maybe Ty West just, like, didn't have the wherewithal to go there. But I think there is, like, an M. Night Shyamalan version of this movie where it turns out that uh, Pearl is just Maxine, like, at a different point in her life. Like, the universe, like, the multiverse opened up. And, like, this was if she chose not to make the pornographic movie. And this is the way when she goes for it. And on both sides of it, she's just this this woman who's who's left, you know unsatisfied and hungry for a life that she could have had you know and i think that that's a pretty interesting uh thing to play around with with you know the somewhat uh you know easy tropes of a you know on a ranch in texas kind of horror movie sure so to be clear you you want the Shyamalan twist or you don't want it I maybe wanted, like, another step towards allowing me to... Because, like, why double cast if not to point out that, like, these are two women who just, like, their paths diverged in the woods? Isn't that exactly what it's doing? I I guess. I mean, but the fact that, like, I didn't even know until you just said it that, in fact, they were double cast, uh, I feel like is uh, interesting. It it just could have had, like, another... Because I would have thrown out the preacher being, like... And I lost my daughter Maxine to the pornographers. Like, that's a thumbs down for me. Come on. Too uh, much. That's like an easy tack on thing. But if, like, I don't know, it like cuts to like the key bowl by the door as she's like, you know, getting in the truck driving away. And it's like some artifact of like, wait a minute, isn't that like her necklace from 30 years earlier or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I, I disagree. I think you're, I, I, I think you're going too far with something that you felt in your bones worked anyway, where you were like, was that her? Was it double cast? Like the fact that you subconsciously knew that it was the same character is so much better than like a shot of a picture at the end where it's the same person. But I don't know. I'm left much like Maxine and Pearl. I'm left still hungry by this movie. Like, I wanted it to, like, make a bigger choice. Because, like, at the end of the day, it is really just, like, the pieces of, you know, the rural horror that, uh, you know, was was already pioneered a a gazillion years ago. You know, so I I don't, like, where does this movie, you know, I don't know if it goes any further. Like, what is it, what does it subvert? Like, what is it, it it takes it and then, and then where does it leave it? Does it, is is it changed at all? I, I don't know. I don't have an easy answer to that. I just think you keep asking and answering your same questions. I think it takes this idea of like what was a kind of kind of fucked up cannibal stand your ground perspective switch and it like it humanizes the monster more and shows perhaps like with more intimacy how the final girl and the big bad always have this kind of like this kinship, this meeting of souls. Um I think it's smart in that way. And yes, there is some, again, the, the, the string of kills is not that interesting. I don't think, I think the, if there's a, if there's a big move, it's just to find a way out of doing the same old thing because for 45 minutes, it really doesn't feel like the movie's even going to do that. 
It feels like it might do something different entirely. And the highlights of the movie, you know what it's kind of like, Noah, is uh, Alien Covenant. Where... Oh, my. You remember... What you remember most about the movies are is this kind of like fucked up doubling of characters where the theme really rises to the fore and you kind of forget that in the middle of all that someone was like, oh yeah, the xenomorph has to kill everybody on the ship. Let's do that for a while. Um, like I almost forget that even happened in Alien Covenant the same way I forget that that even happened in X, but a fair bit of the movie is still spent on, oh no, he got a pitchfork in the head. <laughs> he did get a pitchfork right through the eyeballs. Um yeah, and I think that the the one unexpected kind of like kill sequence humor with the the shotgun having like such a kickback as to like just blow this frail old woman like halfway out the house is yeah. pretty good. Um yeah, maybe maybe it really just is as simple for me as like coming up with more creative and more like thematically linked deaths. The year is yet young. Um I don't you think, think this I'm is old. best picture so far. I think this is the coda of the 2023 oh. Oscars. Um, right. Finally, serial killers will get their time. It is a feel-good story about an old couple finally at long last. Right. This is the uh, best exotic Marigold Hotel of horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I I actually think it's dumb for me to even say this. I've only seen like 14 new releases, but this is near the top. I think this is a good movie um, and I'm going to give it a good, good. I agree with you. I, I don't. Yeah. I wish it did a little bit more, but for the, you know, what it was and, and for the cleverness within, you know, somewhat predictable scenes to make the world feel, as we said at the top, like so big and so immersive. Like even though we're just in the fucking van and then we're just on the on this couple acres in, in rural Texas somewhere, it's just like anything could be out in those woods. Like anything could be in that lake and like anything could be in any room of any of those two structures. And there's something terrifying about that. And then, of course, as we, you know, chew through what does the final girl mean? What are, What is the place for a movie like Scream 7 or whatever? You know, where does the how does this compare to the the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre that was on Netflix? You know, it's it's this is far, far and away, I think, the most, uh, you know, subversive and interesting kind of uh, reset uh, for, for the, the genre cool um so are we ever gonna do miami movies will we ever have an opportunity to do ace ventura scarface and miami vice i'm a fiend for miami movies perfect thank you for buying me the best mojito of the trip well i i just what about that near deathly frozen drink that i bought you at that bar called wet willies there was no beer in sight. I had to get you grain alcohol and cane sugar. Give me two of the call an ambulance, please. <laughs> um, yeah, are there and a any light th- beer for my friend here. <laughs> hey, I wanted a Bud Heavy, um, but the fine that drink was actually called Call a Cab. So okay, <laughs> whoops, at daisies, and yeah, because you can't walk home after having one of them. We found out. Well, I look forward to this tradition where you and I go to go to a new place at, at some regular interval and 
and check, take in their, take in their movie culture. Um, yeah. Which some people have said, Oh, that's a fucking waste of time when to go to a new place and watch movies with Noah. And we went I don't to the agree. beach too. We, yeah, we, we like, for we a went out, we like, yeah, we spent 45 minutes at the beach that one day. And then, <laughs> you know, we ordered all that takeout. Yeah. And then we, Got to the airport in a reasonable amount of time to catch our plane home. Yeah, we like we ha- we went home a day early because we like, we have to do the podcast. <laughs> we have to go back and do- we've already watched three movies. We have to go back and record. <laughs> Great town. I feel like a local. Yes, indeed. Just like Will Smith in that one song, Miami. That's right. Let's stall no further, uh, buddy. This was, it was a joy to to travel with you and and watch these three completely extraneous films wait no i i can't you want to hear my bad link of the three what Remember is that it? one time we watched random movies in lincoln and we were like it's one last shot at family yeah what's um, this one that was for the super fans that was run all night danny collins and mississippi grind these hey, movies babe doll. are all in their own way about let's see what i wrote here on the plane half drunk these all of our movies are about the ravages of aging and our violent responses to not being able to live the lives we want. Does that check out? Yes. I like that. Or like, uh, I would even call these all like, uh, uh, history of violence. Yeah. Why due to, actually, due to they're all, why are movies. these old people killing people? Yeah. Why are these old people killing people? Perfect. So we did it. They're not. It's not just the Miami batch. Um, They're all wearing outfits. <laughs> you're a movies in which the characters all wear outfits. They're all clothed. <laughs> well, actually, for a lot of X, they are not. Okay, we have to go. Um, we're gonna for anyone who stuck around this long for some reason doesn't subscribe to the Be Real Patreon. It's always a great time to subscribe because we're about to record an interview with a vampire live commentary who knows what that not be an like. actual interview with a vampire to be clear no, we don't have that now i reached out to their reps and they said not possible um all right bye buddy Wonderful.